If you're visiting with us this morning, we'll be in Acts chapter 20. In his book, The Conviction to Lead, Al Mohler opens with these words. When a leader walks into a room, a passion for truth had better enter with him. The reason a leader, and more specifically a Christian leader, must be characterized by a passion for truth is because true Christian leadership is grounded in a deep convictional resolve to do what is right based on what we actually believe to be true according to the word of God. Now, in its essence today, our passage from Acts 20 is an exhortation from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian elders to care for God's people with conviction and with compassion. Now, I know that many of us have had experiences in our pasts with Christian leaders that, that were really difficult, either because of heavy-handed and self-serving leadership or because of weak and uh, equivocating leadership. What I've been praying about this morning is that God will use this particular passage and this message to redeem the beauty and the power of the relationship of an elder, of a plurality of elders, an eldership, and God's people into the sacred, beautiful reality that it actually is. Now, whatever your experience has been, my... My aim this morning is not so much to say, hey, in contrast to all the terrible leadership that you've experienced, look at the great way that we do this at River Oaks. Rather, rather, I want us to see, I want to lift up the biblical ideal that we are aspiring to uphold. I want to lift up the type of leadership that we desire to show, the dynamic of relationship we want to cultivate between us, and the level of conviction and compassion we yearn to demonstrate through the power of the Holy Spirit as we trust in Jesus. That's the goal. Our passage this morning is Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 38. Hear then the word of... Almighty God. In these opening couple of verses, we see how Paul ends up on the shoreline at Miletus. Going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. 
From the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem. Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced, they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So Spirit of the living God, would you minister to us now through this powerful passage I ask in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. So as we start to wade into our passage, I want you to think about the future. More specifically, I want you to think about a future conversation that you are likely to have. Because at some point, nearly every person in this room is going to have to say goodbye to someone. The more significant the relationship, the more permanent the goodbye, the more intense your emotions are likely to be on that day. Whether your kids go off to college or you get a new job or or church friends move or when you have a loved one who is nearing death, at some point 
You are going to have to say goodbye to people you have spent time with and people you deeply care about. And Lord willing, on that day, you'll have the opportunity to communicate to that person before you part ways. Now, I'm not sure what conversation you might be thinking about. But what I really want you to think about is, is there anything that you need to do now? Or is there anything that you need to change in terms of your life now? So that you will be able to say with integrity, not perfection, but integrity and not regret, what you hope to be able to say on that day. Wouldn't it be good to say to your children or to your grandchildren or to kids you've taught in Sunday school or mentored in youth group? Wouldn't it be good to be able to say to them at the moment of a major life transition, something like, look, the God I have been teaching you about all these years, he has proven himself faithful over and over Over again, he is the fountain of all true joy. Believe him, trust in his word. Continue to follow him all of your days. Acknowledge the Spirit's presence. When you sin, repent, for you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. His grace is sufficient for you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't you want to be able to say that and mean it? Or when dear brothers or sisters in Christ move away or are called to the mission field or whatever, may we be able to say to one another, look, we've pointed each other to Christ again and again. We've served each other in joyful times and in hard times. I love Jesus more because of your influence in my life. May he strengthen your faith and fill you with deep joy as you seek to honor him. Press on toward the goal. Strain forward for what lies ahead and do it for the glory of God alone as you trust in Jesus. That's how we want to be able to communicate. But our words are the most powerful when they match our actions over a period of years. But thinking about these ideas, it it puts us on the shoreline with Paul and the Ephesian elders. It helps us taste just a little bit the reality of what they're experiencing. Now, last week, Patrick talked about the, the worship service that was in an upper room when Eutychus fell out of the window. And he said, think about it like a final Christ-centered growth group that you might experience. Now, this week's scene, it helps us to feel the weight of the glory of the charge given to those who lead God's people. And it helps us to appreciate the beauty of the sacred nature 
of the relationship that God has given us as the people of God. Now, to try to internalize a little bit the, the power of the exhortation, let's, let's just adopt verse 28 as our central point this morning. Paul's words to the elders are, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Acts 20 and verse 28. Now, in order to get at what undergirds this charge to the elders, we'll look at, at, at the example of Paul's ministry to the Ephesian church in verses 17 through 27, and then we'll look more closely at his exhortation to the Ephesian elders verses 28 through 38. Now, if we attempted to summarize Paul's three-year mission in Ephesus using the info that were given in these verses, we could describe it like this. Paul's ministry was a passionate proclamation of the whole counsel of God focused on the gospel of the grace of God. And I'm just pulling words right out of the text. You can see them as easily as I, uh, particularly verses 24 and 27. Now, one of the characteristics that I love about the way Luke communicates in Acts is that often when someone is speaking, they, they appeal to kind of an eyewitness or a, a firsthand account of the experience. For example, verse 18, and when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. From the first day I set foot in Asia. Paul's words had integrity because he strove to live in a manner consistent with the gospel he proclaimed to believe. But they could have called him out on it. They could have said, Paul, uh, that's what you told us. That's not how you lived among us. But there isn't a hint of that anywhere in this text. Frankly, as we proceed through this message, you can do the same thing with me or any of the other elders. Because one of the things that I will say to you is, you know us. You've lived with us, for some of us, for decades now. You know who we are. That builds in accountability to the relationship. One of the ways this passage inspires me is to see how humbly and passionately Paul served among the Ephesians, evidenced by his tears, and he did so from day one. From the moment he set foot in Asia, he displayed an internal consistency, a convictional resolve, an integrity to do what was right, whatever opposition he faced. But this is a, a mindset that we as believers can aspire to as well. As we seek to follow Jesus, we quickly, very quickly often realize that the Christian life is just hard. Work because of the fall is hard. Ministering to other people because they are flawed is hard. I wasn't pointing at you, Beth, as in you're very flawed. <laughs> Bringing the hope of the gospel to others who don't really want to hear it, that's hard. Dragging our own sinful nature around with us everywhere we go sometimes makes it hard just to be ourselves. That life is hard should be the least surprising thing in the world to us. There is opposition everywhere to God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, and sometimes that war happens even within us. What I find inspirational in Paul's 
ministry testimony here is that difficulty in ministry, it just seemed like a fact of life to Paul. It didn't deter him in the slightest. He didn't appear to be fearful, or if he was fearful, he, he pressed ahead anyway with courage given by the Holy Spirit. He didn't seem to be distracted by the fact that life is often hard, and he didn't seem to be preoccupied with it either. The reality of the situation is that we often need to have our thoughts recalibrated. Listen to these verses describing how how we are to be in all circumstances as the people of God. Whether we're eating or drinking, or working or ministering, indeed, in everything that we are called to do, we are called to do it without conceit, Philippians 2.3 without complaining, Philippians 2.14, and we are called to do it continually rejoicing in the Lord, Philippians 4.4. We could just stop there and let those verses recalibrate our hearts. But in addition, we are called to do everything we are called to do prayerfully, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, fervently, Ecclesiastes 9, in faith, Romans 14, and to the glory of God alone, 1 Corinthians 31. Let's let, let's let these verses and the reality of how Paul ministered in Ephesus just kind of serve as smelling salts for us to awaken us to the reality that we shouldn't expect life to be easy. But we are called to live in this way for the glory of God and honor of God. Despite the difficulty, Paul did not shrink back in public or private from declaring anything that was spiritually profitable. And it didn't matter if a person was a Greek or a Jew. He talked to everybody about the gospel and called them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. Verse 21. Now, if we think about applying the verses that I just read for, let's say, for just two gospel-informed seconds, we realize that we can joyfully press on in whatever God calls us to do, or despite difficulty or opposition, not because of the fact that all of us have an iron will. God calls us to press ahead and to follow him, but it's not based on the level of our humility or the lack of our conceit or the depth of our faith or the fervency of our efforts in serving him. Rather, God calls us to press ahead despite difficulty as we're led by the Holy Spirit because our standing before God is based based on the, the faith, the fervency, the humility and the obedience of Jesus given to us when he exchanged his righteousness for our sinfulness on Calvary's cross. Look, Paul's not a superhero. He's a normal person. In many ways, he was a weak, frail guy. But what a, so what accounts for this? 
What accounts for this fervency? Paul was the apostle of the heart set free. It was the gospel of God that he believed to be true, which fueled his ministry. God, Paul was so convinced of the greatness of the glory of the God that we've been singing about that, that nothing could stop him from telling others about him. Not only does the reality of the gospel help us to just endure difficulty in life, it fuels us to be able to press on towards anything that God is calling us to do. And now behold, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions Await me. But because Paul has seen the glory of God revealed in the Old Testament, and because Jesus had revealed himself to Paul, and because Paul believed the gospel that he preached, he could say, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. How countercultural are those words? Our world is just drunk with self-infatuation. What seems preeminent in Paul's mind is not living his best life now, or telling his truth to the world, but how he can die more fully to himself so that he can more freely testify to God's truth, the only truth that ultimately matters. That reality consumed Paul because God's truth is reality. The truth that Paul focused upon was that free grace from God is available to all who will Receive it. Do you know that this morning? The reason Paul sold out completely and considered his life of as no value or, or precious to himself was because he was called to proclaim this message. Free grace from God is available to all who will receive it. Free pardon for sin is available no matter what you have done. Free pardon from the consequences of sin is available for every person who is willing to receive the salvation offered in Jesus Christ. The messaging of the world is relentlessly committed to distracting you from the reality of what is true. The gospel of the world is that sin is self-expression. And if God isn't the way you want him to be, then you can, you can simply just ignore him out of existence. Here's the thing. That's not true. In fact, sin is actually self-destruction. And no matter how hard 
anyone has ever tried throughout the history of the world, God still exists. No matter how hard someone has tried to eliminate him from their thinking, God exists just as strongly at this moment in history in all the fullness of who he is. And he will continue to be all-powerful and unchanging forever and ever and ever. It doesn't matter how much you try to put him out of your mind. God simply is. The reality of sin in the world, and this is where it gets so hard, the reality of sin in the world and the haunting inescapability of our consciences, they are testifying, they are clear testimonies that we need rescued. That we need rescued from our own pain, that we need rescued from our own shame, and we need rescued from our own sinful rebellion against God. But the glorious news is that God sent his son, his very own son, to rescue us. And if you don't know Jesus, to rescue you from the horror of sin and to give you the goodness and the purity that you yearn to experience but can barely fathom. But if you recognize this truth, your life can be redeemed from the pit of unrighteousness and despair. There is a hope who will never fail you, and his name is Jesus. Throw yourself on his mercy today, and he will save your soul. This is the good news of the gospel of grace. Paul thought it was worth anything to get this message out. So he didn't pull back from declaring everything that God's word said, verse 26, to anyone who would listen. Therefore, he believed he was innocent of the blood of all, which is another way of saying if people remained under the condemnation of God, it wasn't because he was unwilling to tell them the truth about their standing before God apart from Christ. Therefore, he believed that he could not be held accountable in any sense for anyone's refusal to follow Jesus. So then, with a clear conscience, Paul hands the incredibly weighty mantle of church leadership to the Ephesian elders, and he charges them with these words, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Uh, I have not known a single elder who wasn't brought to the end of himself by this verse. Note that all three members of the Godhead are present. The Holy Spirit has made us overseers to care for God's church, which he obtained with his own blood, which, which can also be translated with the blood of his own Son, namely Jesus Christ. So the Father and the Son and the Spirit charge the leaders of the church 
to care for them with convictional resolve based on the word of God and with compassion consistent with the character of Jesus. Now, note first here in verse 28 that Paul says that the elders are to pay attention to their own souls. Uh, And the reason for that is because they're fellow members of the flock. As elders, we desire to be completely open. So let me just tell you how we seek to apply this verse. Uh, Our standing schedule as elders is to meet twice a month. Of course, sometimes we have to meet more than that if we're working through a particular theological issue or if something comes up that's of a serious nature. We have to meet much more than that. But our standing schedule is that we meet twice a month on, on one meeting We spend time thinking through the decisions that need to be made organizationally, any any key details that we need to work out, any pastoral situations where we need multiple men to weigh in. We take time to pray for those. On the other meeting, we, we commit to praying for each other and asking each other about our struggles with sin and where discouragement or doubt is, is raising its head in our own lives. Because our thought process is we're not going to care for people in the body very well if we're not caring for each other well. And we want to care for the body with the same level of shepherding and care and love that we're demonstrating to each other. So it's a matter of integrity for us as we seek to apply this verse in particular. If you walked into an elders meeting... On, on most days, it would seem like the most normal thing in the world. Uh, we laugh and joke around, and we talk about serious things, and we spend time praying together. In other words, it probably looks like most conversations that you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ here at River Oaks. Because most of the time, being an, el- an elder looks very, very ordinary, um, Except for this, the elders are also charged with the responsibility of remaining alert, always being ready for a spiritual attack against the church. It reminds me of an interview that I saw a number of years ago with um, Robert O'Neill, who was the SEAL Team 6 member that um, took out Osama bin Laden. He said when he got the call for the mission, he had walked into a gas station convenience store to get, to get a drink and a pack of gum. And he's just standing there in line in the midst of everybody else. And the guy in front of him is looking at the TV and they're talking about Bin Laden. And he says, I wish somebody would just take care of that guy. And he's standing behind him and he said he was thinking, I'm on my way if you just hurry up. I think in, at least in, in this sense or in some sense, eldership is a, is a little bit like a military ops unit. The, ma- the vast majority of the time, everything's normal. We just blend into the body like everybody else, just like O'Neill blended into the line. But there are moments, and sometimes there are seasons when God calls us to a very specific task, or a specific mission, if you will. 
that requires a very high level of engagement for a sustained period of time. Look, we are the most normal, ordinary guys in the world, and you know that because you've talked to us and lived with us. But God has given us an extraordinary, extraordinarily high calling and a sacred one. So please pray for us regularly. We need it in our own lives, with our own families, and and we don't have any idea from where the next spiritual attack might come. As a matter of first importance, an elder is charged with the responsibility of protecting the flock, and that's evident from the next few verses in our passage. Paul was concerned both about fierce attacks from the outside of the church, and he was concerned about subversive attacks from inside the church. Verses 29 through 31 make that clear. Now, these attacks could be false teachers uh, or specific sins that could threaten even the integrity of the church. It's interesting because in verse 31, Paul says that the way that he combated this danger, the way that he stayed vigilant and alert, was that he never stopped warning people. He never stopped admonishing people, and he did so with tears. So it's a little bit of a window into Paul's pastoral heart. He wasn't afraid to confront people for their sin or for their false beliefs, but he did so with compassion, and he did so with tears that indicated both the seriousness of sin and the danger that it presented, not just for the person, but for the church, potentially. I mean, just think about gossip as one example. Gossip acts like a corrosive or an acid that not only eats away at the gossiper's soul, but every person who hears the message as well. I don't know if you've ever thought about it exactly this way, but one of the best ways you, you can help us guard all of us, guard the flock, from spiritual attack is to remain vigilant against sin and the lure of doctrinal error in your own heart and life. In terms of both of these things, sin and doctrinal error, the best way to combat these dangers is is don't deal with it on your own. Stay in community with others. Share what's going on in the appropriate context. Pray with one another. Don't be afraid to warn one another with tears. There's so much at stake. In terms of doctrine, if you hold a particular view that no one else holds except for you, the most likely reason is because you're wrong. That's just a plain fact. So you need to be very open to correction, and if you you hold an obscure or esoteric view, you need to bring that into the light of God's Word and into the community of believers so that we can weigh your thinking on the matter. And you need to be open to correction. So do the elders. So do I at this moment. If I say something during this message and you say, what are you talking about? I don't see where you're getting that from that passage. Come up to me and ask me and we'll look at it together. And if, if I'm wrong and you're right, I will repent of what I taught. I will adopt your view and the word of God and its authority will be seen as magnificently glorious. All of us 
Every person, every elder needs to be open to correction from the word of God. And that often comes mediated through someone else in the body. Now, I am not saying that we should become sin hunters. Right? God forbid. Or that, that all of us have to have the exact same perspective on a particular theological issue. That, that would be weird, creepy, maybe cult-like. What I am saying is that we all need to remain vigilant. And the best way to do that is to help care for each other by pointing each other continuously to the grace of the gospel from God's word. In our chapter on pastoral leadership in our Rock 101 class, we include, we include this quote from John Piper. Pastoral care is the loving concern for his flock, which God shows by providing shepherds whose job it is to equip the saints to provide care to one another. Yes, you should be thinking about growth group. Now, verse 32 is simple, but it's crucial. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The best way to feed God's flock and to equip God's flock to care for one another is through the word of grace. Use Paul's language. In fact, the only way, if you think about it, that you can actually be commended to God, which means that you are presented as acceptable to God, is through the gospel itself. So we have to be relentless in pointing each other to this truth. At River Oaks, the reason that we preach through whole books of the Bible expositionally, the reason we read through whole books of the Bible publicly, the reason we seek to apply God's word faithfully in growth group weekly, the reason we teach Bible-saturated and gospel-centered material in our Sunday morning equipping classes, the reason we provide opportunities to read through the Bible together, the reason our youth groups and children's ministries are word-centered and theologically robust, and the reason we open our worship gatherings with the Word of God and that we close our worship gatherings with the Word of God is because the Word of God is how we get to glory. Verse 32. Our convictional resolve as elders is that the word of God is as crucial for spiritual life in our souls as the sun is for physical life on our planet. Indeed, more so. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, Psalm 19. May we shout with the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy law, Psalm 119. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In verses 33 through 35, Paul again appeals to his integrity in ministry 
as an example to the Ephesian elders. Now, when, he, when I'm talking about integrity, I am not talking about perfection. I'm talking about matching how we live with what we say we believe as we are led by the Holy Spirit and trust in Jesus. Paul references the fact that he is not taken from anyone and that his own hands have provided for his needs. I find this odd. So if you, if you read the flow of it, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. It just seems strange to me that he would say it this way. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, he's talking about his own hands, and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So what in the world is he talking about here? I think Paul's point is that as elders... He wants them to maintain a posture of giving to and serving others, not receiving from and being served by others. Right? Because remember the context. You're talking about the leaders. He especially points to the need to help the weak. So, so think through this with me. I think the reason is that our hearts are far less likely to think that especially in leadership, that we're entitled to receive something, whatever that is, including honor or respect, from those who can provide it, if you, you're, you're far less likely to do that if you are actively seeking to generously give away what you have, especially to people in need. So the dynamic that I think Paul's thinking of is, look, you're the leaders. I want you to have the posture that you are constantly giving. You are constantly serving, especially those who are weak. I don't want you to be thinking that you're entitled to receive things from the body. The body is welcome to be generous to you, but I don't want you thinking that's the right dynamic. As proof positive, Paul points to Jesus, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Think about how powerful that statement is. Think about how much truth is packed into Jesus' words when he says it is more blessed, more joyful, more satisfying to give than to receive. The heart of an elder is to protect and to provide for God's flock because this is consistent with the character of our beloved Lord Jesus. So in a sense, we are attempting to reflect the character of Jesus who provides and protects for his flock. And in no small way. If you are a member of the family of God, Jesus has protected you from the wrath of Almighty God. He absorbed it on your behalf. And he provided for you nothing less than his own personal righteousness so that you could be commended to God, so that you could be acceptable to God. This is the beauty and power of the gospel. Jesus' ministry was a ministry of protection and provision for his flock. 
And in some small way, the elders desire to reflect that heart of Jesus to this body. The heart of an elder is to generously give to the body, not a heart that that believes he is entitled to receive from the body. Think about the glorious passage from Philippians 2. Jesus was and is and forever will be God. And yet he did not count equality with God something to be reached for or to be grasped. He didn't act as if he was entitled to it. Though he was. He's entitled to all worship, all respect, all honor, and all praise. But, but see the heart of your Savior. God is an ever-flowing fountain of generosity and grace. This is who he is by nature. By nature, he is a Father, Son, and Spirit. He is a triune Godhead, constantly expressing love to one another. In other words, overflowing, giving, receiving, blessing. He creates out of the overflow of his generosity, of the goodness of who he is, so that others might experience him in all of his fullness. The heart of an elder is to lead primarily by compassionately serving others, not with the expectation that he would be served by others. Again, think about the Lord Jesus. The word used most often to describe him in the New Testament is that he had pity, that he had compassion on other people. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. He he didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. Not those who are healthy, but those who are sick. Jesus, the Lord of glory, came to help the vulnerable and the weak, and his eyes in the New Testament always seemed to be on those who were on the periphery. Who touched me? There's a woman who was bleeding, and he knew. He knew, he looked at her, he dignified her, he healed her through his power. This is the heart of our Savior. And in some small measure, we as elders desire to reflect the glory of Jesus in the way that we serve. It was Jesus himself who said, The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. The fruit of leadership that that sacrificially seeks the good of others, it yields the kind of beautiful picture that we see here in these last couple verses When he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that he would not see, they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So they embraced because the reality is they had loved each other over a period of three years. And this was the end of that time on this earth. And they knelt down 
because of the sacredness of the calling. The beauty of, of Christian fellowship, because it was bought by the blood of Jesus, and because it is wrought by the presence of the Holy Spirit for the glory and honor of the Father, is the most sacred, privileged relationship imaginable. So may God richly bless our relationship. The relationship between our elders and our people here at River Oaks. May the beauty of the way that we love each other in, in, in some measure reflect the love of our God to a desperate world. And may all of us together joyfully joyfully follow the leading of the one and only truly good shepherd, the one who laid down his life for his sheep so that we might be with him forever. May all glory and honor be to his name and to his name alone. Would you pray with me? Lord, we... are honored by the reality of the relationship that you have called us into as the people of God. We know that uh, if we were standing in our own strength, Satan would sift us like wheat. We would be utterly destroyed. And yet, because of the power of Jesus' name, and because of his promise that nothing can stop the advancement of his church, we have every reason to be confident, humble, and confident that you will accomplish your purposes in and through the church. As a testimony to that reality, Lord, we now sing praises to the Lord Jesus. May we all hail the power of Jesus' name. Amen.